This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked podcast, a bi-weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode four, and we are recording on Monday, October 19th. I'm Amanda Nelson, your host and managing editor of Book Riot, and I am here with Becky Spradford for our all-horror episode. Becky's a reader's advisor in Illinois, specializing in serving patrons 13 and up. She trains library staff all over the world on how to match books with readers through the local public library. She runs the critically acclaimed RA training blog, RA for All, and it's evil twin sister, RA for All Horror, which is currently running a 31 Days of Horror blogathon uh, with a giveaway that starts today, the 19th, so it will be running by the time this goes up. She's on the steering committee of the Adult Reading Roundtable and is under contract to provide content for EBSCO's Novelist Database. She writes reviews for Booklist and is known for her work with horror readers as the author of the Reader's Advisory Guide to Horror 2nd Edition, also a proud member of the Horror Writers Association. And I will have links to all of this in the show notes so you can follow her adventures in horror on the internet. Thank you so much for joining me, Becky. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about this show. So obviously it is October and time to talk about scary books. So every question in this episode has to do with people looking for recommendations for horror of all kinds. Um, so before we get to the questions, I just wanted to let you guys know how this podcast works. If you're new, you just write in your reading recommendation request. They can be for you. They can be for a, a friend, a present you want to give to someone for your book club, whatever. It doesn't matter. You can send your reading recommendation request to getbooked at bookriot.com, or you can leave them in the form, which will be at the bottom of this post on the website. Um, and if you, if it takes a while for us to get to your question, don't fret. I will get to every question. And if it is time sensitive, please leave a note in your question that it is time sensitive so I can make sure to address it as soon as I can. Um, so before we get into the questions, I want to talk really quickly about Book Riot Live and remind you guys that that is happening in just 19 days, actually. We've got a countdown running uh, on social media and today is the 19th day, 19 days to go. Um, so November 7th and 8th in New York City, we're going to get together for two days of bookish fun with about a thousand other book nerds and, you know, do it up literary style. I guess we have a reading lounge, which is the best, I think. Um, and we are also doing a live recording of this podcast at, at Book Riot Live. And my guest will be Sarah McLean, the romance author. We're going to be doing an all-romance um, episode. We've already got so many questions for that for that uh, recording, so I don't want to like encourage you to send in more because I probably we probably won't get to them at this point. We've got so many, and we are on a time crunch because there's a panel right before and a panel right after us in the space that we're using. Um, but you can, of course, send in uh, your romance re uh, reading requests to the show, and I will get to them. Just probably not on that episode. But if you're if you're coming to Book Riot Live, make sure you come to our live recording. We are going to be taking uh, audience questions as well, so it's going to be a lot of fun. And you can use the code Get Booked. Uh, when you go to register at bookwritelive.com, and it will get you $20 off. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and read the first two questions. These are related, so um, I kind of lump them together. And then I'll do our first sponsor, and then we will get right to the answers. All right, so question 1A, as it were. Hello, Bookwrite team. Through you guys, I discovered Bird Box by Josh Mallerman and absolutely loved it. Now I am looking for similar horror, bo horror books that, like Bird Box, do not directly depict 
Good lord. Do not directly depict or vividly describe gore or horror. For my taste, Stephen King's novels, for example, tend to build up to that point, while I, like many, am much more scared by things that are invisible or not even there at all. Therefore, I'm looking for a book that scares you more through the characters' reactions and leaves you guessing about what's actually keeping them up at night, maybe even beyond the book's end. It doesn't have to be considered a horror book. It should just make you uneasy and provoke the feeling that something about the story is incredibly wrong and eerie. Thank you and greetings from Germany. That's from Constantin. And uh, question 1B is the same. First, I want to say I love your podcast. Thank you very much. I just finished reading Bird Box and loved it. Do you have any other scary, spooky horror recommendations? And that's from Barbara. So I'm going to go ahead and do our first sponsor, which is a creepy, spooky book, uh, appropriately enough. And then we will get to our answers. So our first sponsor is We'll Never Be Apart by Amiko Jean. The book follows 17-year-old Alice Monroe, who only thinks about three things, murder, fire, and revenge, as one does when one is in a spooky novel. Uh, Alice is locked in a mental ward on Savage Isle and is haunted by memories of the fire that killed her boyfriend, Jason, the fire that was set by her twin sister. So when whispers from other mental patients convince Alice that her twin has also been committed to the island, Alice vows to avenge the life of the boy that she loved. She's aided by Chase, who's a mysterious and charismatic new patient. She stealthily combs Savage Isle at night, uh, looking for her sister. And of course, by day, she plays the good patient. She goes to her group therapy. She writes in her journal, all of that. And uh, But of course, nothing on the island is what it seems. No one will leave the same. This is an edge-of-your-seat psychological thriller that has a foster care element um, and is perfect for October. So check out We'll Never Be Apart by Yumiko Jean. It is available now. All right, so books like Bird Box. Why don't you kick us off, Becky? Okay, great. And I loved this question because I was one of those evangelists for Bird Box last year, too. It was one of my absolute favorite books I read all last year. And I'm going to give you some books that I think are similar, but I want to give a little tease to stay till the very end of this podcast because I'm going to give you guys all the book that is this year's Bird Box at the end. Yeah. But what I really um, loved about Bird Box are the same things that the, the two readers who wrote in did. And in fact, when I thought back, the book, I was sad when I finished Bird Box. And the last time I was sad when I finished sort of a, a horror book like that was a book called The Caretaker of Lauren Field by Dave Zeltzerman. And so here's the setup here. Um, Jack Durkin is the current caretaker of Lauren Field. It is somewhere in modern day rural New England. He is the current in a 300 year line of caretakers. And he works that field from dawn to dusk every day from spring until first frost, pulling the weeds that grow in that field. But these are not any weeds. These weeds are monsters, <laughs> vicious monsters, which if not weeded will grow to full form, leave the ground and destroy the world. The town's residents used to idolize the caretaker and his family. But, you know, it's the modern world now. And there's computers and other things. And people are skeptical there. So before the, the community would care for the caretaker and their family, would pay for him, would make sure that they were comfortable. The town kept him on the payroll. And now that the younger people have taken over the town's government, they're fed up with supporting the caretaker. They see his work as nothing but a superstition. It is time to let it go. Even his oldest son, who's supposed to take over on his 21st birthday, doesn't believe in the monsters. So here's that's the premise. But what is so appealing about this book is how Zeltzerman tells the story, because we see everything from Turkin's point of view. So we see the field through his eyes, and he convinces us that the monsters are there. We have no doubt. But then, toward, like more than halfway through the story, 
other people come in, other voices. And the reader begins to question, should we have undying support for Durkin? Are they really monsters? What's going to happen if he just doesn't weed them? Um, and it's just, it's amazing. It's very short. And it's got that close personal style about if you see it one way, there's monsters. If you don't, the pace builds slowly with so much tension. And the ending is fantastic because you you have to decide for yourself but you see both sides of the story and it's just terrifying. Well, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My first thing. Oh, well, I wanted to say just in case there are people out there who haven't read bird box. um, The premise behind bird box is that you never see the villain, right? So in this, in, in bird box, um, there's, I don't, you don't know, like an illness or maybe a, a mass hysteria or aliens or something that is causing people when they see these beings they go crazy and commit suicide. And so the heroine of the book has to spend the entire book blindfolded when she's outside. Um, and she has two children and she has to raise them from birth to not use their eyesight. Um, so you never see the villains and it's just this really ominous, horrible, frightening thing. And that's the most frightening thing about it for me was that you never, you don't, you don't know what the enemy looks like, so you don't know how to control it. So it's really creepy. Um, so my first recommendation for these listeners is Night Film by Marisha Pessel. I read this book two years ago, and I loved it so much. It's so creepy and weird. Um, it's about a journalist who becomes obsessed with finding, with solving the mystery of the death of Ashley Cordova, who is a who is the daughter of an award-winning cult horror filmmaker um, named Stanislas Cordova. So he hasn't been seen in public for over thirty years. This filmmaker he makes these horrifying. Um, movies that are that are shown in like deserted subway stations that people watch and just are like totally completely horrified by Um, but there's all this mystery and death and weirdness surrounding this director and then his daughter mysteriously dies Uh, and it's ruled a suicide but this investigative journalist who has already gotten in trouble for investigating this filmmaker um, decides that it's not a suicide maybe there's witchcraft involved or maybe it was murder or maybe it was whatever you know and so he goes on this kind of wild goose chase to hunt down the director of all of these horror films and find out what happened to his daughter and find out what kind of person this director actually is. And the closer that he gets, the more eerie and weird uh, the book becomes and the more like frightening and bizarre things start happening. Um, I didn't, the ending of this one was not my favorite, I will say, but I, I, that's obviously subjective opinion. Some people loved it. So whatever, take that with a grain of salt. Um, But The tension builds so slowly and carefully, and it's just so eternally creepy. There are scenes in this book that had me, I I had to stop reading for a couple of days to like recover, (laughs) especially one where he gets like trapped in a box. Anyway, I don't want to spoil it. But yeah, so that's my first one, Night Film by Marish Puzzle. And Amanda, you know what's great about that book is because it's about horror films, there's these great scene in like the last third of the book where it's almost like he's stuck in a horror film, which is so cool for people who like books and film, too. Yes, yes, very meta. <laughs> yes. Um, I have a, that's a great segue, because I have a book that's kind of meta. It's a book within a book story. Um, it's a great story for people who are looking for good writing, plenty of ambiance, and a horrific tone, but really without any gore. And it might surprise some people, but it's by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jennifer Egan. It's the book she wrote before a visit to the Goon Squad, but after Look at Me, which was nominated for the National Book Award, it's called The Keep. And it's a gothic novel that follows two estranged cousins who 
have been apart for many years and estranged because of a really um, deadly prank gone wrong when they were younger. But they come back together to renovate a very creepy Eastern European castle soon after the wall falls down. Um, never the best idea um, when you're going to a creepy castle with somebody who you don't get along with so great. So this combination of their strained relationship and this eerie building is atmosphere enough. But then, talk about meta, Egan ups the ante with the additional voice of a narrator, Ray, who's actually a convict in a prison writing program, who is the real author of this cousin's story. Um, so that's story within a story frame. And, you know, you're following the story of a convicted murderer as a reader, and you're enjoying the story. What does that say about you in terms of the oppressive uh, of the story falling on you and the anxiety-driven narrative? It just... Tons of dread without any monsters coming out of you. But why I really also want to point this book out is it's perfect for all those atmospheric, creepy, not really ever seeing what's going to come and get you, but the sense of dread throughout. But another reason you need to know about this book is that this was really one of the first literary authors to put their hand at trying a horror novel. It's coming up a lot more now, and I think both Amanda and I are going to bring up other authors who've done this. But when Jennifer Egan first did this, I went back and looked at some of the original reviews. Now, I read this book back in 2006 when it came out. But I was looking at Publishers Weekly, and they were talking about the mediocre writing and the gimmick of using the castle. I feel like if this book was written now, she would be praised for trying to use um, genre in a literary form. And um, because people are doing it all the time now. But also, I want to comment on that because I loved the, the sort of gimmicky writing at the beginning. Because you're noticing as you're reading it that this isn't the best written story you've read. And then you find out that it's actually a, a convict in a prison writing program writing it. And it adds a whole other level to the way the story's written that I think needs to be acknowledged. Um, but it is extremely uh, anxiety just crashing down on you. And I see things in it that she then used in A Visit to the Goon Squad, which is her masterpiece. Okay, awesome. I haven't read that one yet, but I have read... Goon Squad, excuse me. I love Jennifer Egan so much, so I will definitely get to that. Okay, my next pick is Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer. This is uh, the first book in the Southern Reach trilogy, and uh, it's it's horror, but it's also just weird. Um, so if you are into at all like weird science fiction kind of stuff, then this will really scratch that itch. But it's also completely creepy and, and strange and bizarre and very ominous. Uh, so it's about uh, Area X, which is a plot of land in some indeterminate part of the U.S. that is sounds a lot like Florida, um, that's been cut off for the, from the rest of the continent for decades. Nature has totally reclaimed it. You can't go into or out of Area X except by, for this, through this very specific um, door created by the government. And the government is sending scientific expeditions into Area X to find out what happened, why it's been shut off from the rest of the country, um, why it's turned into this like Edenic, sort of pristine environmental paradise of a landscape. And they're sending an expedition after expedition after expedition, and each one comes back either um, crazy or they come back shadows of their former selves. They come back and then they all get cancer and die. They all commit suicide. They all turn on each other and kill each other when they're in Area X. And so the book opens on the 12th expedition. And the, the group going into Area X is made up of four women. They have different jobs. There's a psychologist and an anthropologist, um, a biologist, all of these scientists who are going in to try and study Area X, and of course they don't—they don't—they're not given any information, any real information about the past expeditions' experiences. Um, they're just given these blank journals and some, you know, surveying equipment, and told to go find out what they can find out. And um, 
they you're you're following along with the narrator who is the biologist, uh, but you never know if what she's seeing is is real or if it, if she's hallucinating or if she's being whatever possessed or taken over by you know some like alien force you you don't know. Uh, and so the as things start to deteriorate in during this expedition and people start to die or disappear or whatever, and you never really see it's got that thing with Bird Box where you you don't see the the thing that's pulling the strings like you don't. Throughout the, the the book, you don't see the uh, whatever force it is that's making all of this happen, and that's it's really ominous and and creepy and ju- and a lot like Bird Box in that way. And the thing I like about this is it is a trilogy, so once you're finished and you're like, what? But that didn't explain. You, you can keep going, and you'll find out eventually who the big bad is. But in book one, you do not know. So yeah. And it is fantastic read because, and I think when you said weird was perfect because it's totally creepy and scary, and you can't classify it. Um, it is a great read and super short. I read that whole book um, on one plane ride because you just don't want to put it down. Yeah, I think I read it for a readathon because it's only like 200 pages. If and it's the whole series is paperback original, so they're easy to take with you places. You know, it's, you don't have to worry. You can have an ebook as one book, and this can be your carry book. It's not heavy. Yeah, <laughs> and they've got great covers too. You guys should check those out. They're just they draw people in. So I kind of went similarly too with my last recommendation. Uh, I have a book that um, you. You feel the oppression. There's definitely terror going on, and you don't really know what's causing it. In this case, you do find out at the end what's causing it, and it's a person, not a monster. And that book is Await Your Reply by Dan, I think you say his last name, Chone. Um, It was on a lot of best lists in 2009. I have read this book twice, actually, and I've done it for book discussions, which is an excellent thing to do. And what's so great about it is the plot's super simple, and because the plot isn't why you want to read this book. There are basically three stories of three different people who are searching for someone or something. The novel is then comprised of three sections. So you have three stories that are each in, put, told in three sections. So in part one, each of these stories is quite separate. Each chapter follows one of these characters on their search, and it alternates back and forth for the section. And then in part two, you're like, okay, that's weird. Why am I reading this? You know, these people don't have anything in common. And then in part two, the stories start to blend together, but not obviously terms, places, names, they sort of repeat in what was once separate narratives. So you're getting uncomfortable. It, it, you know something's going on. You have no idea what it is, but it's not good. And then part two leads to this chaotic and violent ending. Again, you still are totally confused. So stay with me here. It's confusing. But, um, <laughs> What I do need to mention here before I get to part three is it's this layered storytelling style that does mean you have to read this sort of, again, in a few short sittings because it's that unsettling tone. So you get to part three and it rounds out the novel. By its conclusion, everything's explained. And for the surviving characters, things are resolved, kind of. There's still that open ending, which which Bird Box has too. There's a resolved ending where, you know, the character gets somewhere, but we have no idea what's going to happen to her and the two children she's with at that point. We just know they've made it to a new place. And here, um, we don't, you know, really know what's going to happen to these people after this experience. But what's so great about the book is... Um, the plot twists so much it turns in on itself and that nightmarish tone stays throughout. For example, the book opens with a boy whose hand has just been cut off (laughs) to the hospital. I mean, this is like, and we don't go back to that scene till the very end of part two. So you are just like, what's going on? Why is his hand cut off? Who did it? 
Um, so a sense of dread permeates the novel from that first sentence and just literally grabs you and shakes you. Very similar to how I felt when I read Bird Box. You know, from the very first sentences, you are just drawn into what is going on, why, what is causing all these problems. Um, but you can't, you, it's terrible, but you can't stop turning the pages. And I purposely have not given very many plot details here because it would really spoil it. But I do want to say one of the reasons this book really gets you, you know, we talked about Bird Box. It's a monster you can't see. And if you, you know, if you look at it, you're dead. It's so compelling. Well, here, this whole book's about identity. Who are we? Are we more than just our names? Is identity fluid or static? Which is such a universal theme. It's something that everybody thinks about all the time. Um, You can't get away from it. It makes you think about it for yourself. And so because we've got sort of that in your gut theme that you can't get away from. It just makes the dread so much more. Okay, my last uh, recommendation for this one, I I picked out a sentence in the first question where the listener said that they're looking for something that makes you uneasy, uh, where you feel like something about the story is just wrong and eerie. And I actually went to a children's book for my last recommendation for this. It's Coraline by Neil Gaiman. Um, It's a short little, I don't know, I guess you would call it middle grade a book about a little girl who lives with her mother and father, and she's very bored by her family. They're very normal. Um, I remember there's one part in the book where she, in the beginning, where she gets mad with her father because he cooks dinner from a recipe instead of just like ordering a pizza, and that just stuck with me as something like something such a so childlike, something that a kid would be so angry about. Like, what? I hate when you cook from recipes. It always ends up having vegetables in it. Anyway, so she has all of these very uh, pedestrian complaints about her family, and then she discovers a passageway in her drawing room it's a it's a locked door when she opens it it's a brick wall and then she tries again later and this mysterious passageway appears she goes through the passageway into an alternate world that mirrors her own so it's just kind of an alternate universe where she's got two new parents who are her quote-unquote other parents they look and act like her existing mother and father but they have creepy black button eyes um and they're they're more interesting they want to give her what she wants but everything they say has this eerie tinge and this feeling of like that's just not quite right um and she starts to realize Coraline starts to realize that her other parents want to keep her in that universe forever away from her real parents and her family and her friends and so she's like this cat comes along to help her in in a very Neil Gaiman like sort of way um and it's spooky and it does that thing that Neil only Neil Gaiman can do where it's obviously a children's book but it's so horrifying Neil Gaiman has such this has like this knack for taking the way that children think about things and making it scary in a way that I, I, it's, it's almost like hard to articulate. Um, but the way that kids see evil and see uh, bad motives and, and see like malintent is so perfectly portrayed in Neil Gaiman's books. And I was totally creeped out by Coraline. I read it like, I don't know, three or four years ago, I solidly as an adult and it was still, mortified by it. So um, yeah, so that's my last one. Coraline Neil Gaiman. Okay, question number two. This one's about short stories, I think. Yes. Okay, we are doing a Halloween readathon at our library. All of the librarians are looking for short, scary stories to read out loud. We want the stories to be short enough that people will sit through them without leaving. I'm especially interested in including diverse authors in the mix. Any suggestions that will chill our patrons and introduce them to authors beyond the expected? All right, why don't you go first here? Well, I'm going to go first with an expected story, but I think that a lot of people haven't read it as an adult, and that's The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. A lot of people have to read this in school, and they they know what it's about, and maybe someone hasn't read it, in which case you need to do it as a read-aloud. But no, the lore goes that nothing in The New Yorker, in the history of The New Yorker, 
ever got more mail than the lottery. So that's saying a lot about it. But why I'm bringing it up is I recently, just over a year ago, did it as a read aloud, or it was a reading assignment in a group of librarians in a group training. And we read it all together in the room, quietly to ourselves, and then we did an exercise with it. And 90% of us had read it before, but we still got that punch in the gut when you get to the end. And here's why it's great as a read aloud. The story starts off, everybody's excited in this small town and you're excited and you have all this suspense because of excitement. And every word in this story is just perfectly picked. The, the tension builds. You, you, you feel uneasy the whole time, even though you, you've, they're happy. But why are they happy? Why don't I know what's going on? Tell me, tell me. You're almost mad at Shirley Jackson for not telling you. And then when she tells you, you're like, oh, no, I did not want to know that. Um, and reading it as an adult is totally different than reading as a child. This is the horror of what people can do to each other. Um, people who haven't read it in years say all the time, you know, I can't believe I forgot about how affecting that story was. There cannot be Hunger Games without this story. You will just have a new appreciation for her writing. But out loud, it is just a perfect story that holds the tension. The words are done well. Um, you will have people paying attention. All right. My first uh, recommendation is pretty much any story from the book of Ghost Summer by Tanana Reeve Dew, um, which the whole, all of the, the stories, it's a collection of short stories. And I think one novella is in there as well. But all of these stories take place in one town in like the swampy swampness of Florida. Um, and they're all ghost stories. Some of them are scarier than others and some of them are longer than others. So the two specifically that I would recommend from this collection that, that would be good for reading aloud is one called Summer. Um, and the thing about this collection is that ghosts in this town um, in Florida are real and everyone knows it and accepts it and it's just kind of a way of life that they interact with ghosts. And they, the mythology is that as you get older, you're less able to interact with the ghosts, but, the, but it's accepted that children um, are interacting with the supernatural throughout the story. So in the, in the story summer, um, a woman moves to town. So she's kind of new. Her husband is from that town and she has a baby, a one-year-old and her child is horrible. And like mothers don't like admitting this, but her child won't stop screaming. Her child doesn't like her, um, throws fits, tries to hurt her, like pulls her earrings out of her ears, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then one day her kid becomes this kind of angel and, but in a, in a really creepy way, like stares at her, won't, um, won't speak and all this stuff and you start to realize that some she's been possessed basically and then the mythology comes out that this is what happens in summer in this town to babies and that you have to take these specific steps to prevent it or to get rid of the thing possessing her child and then the the choice that she's facing is do I want to because originally my baby as herself is is horrible do I want her back and so it's not just ghosts and creepy and possession it's also like the choices you face as a parent and like, are you allowed to not like your child when your child is, is that young and has no control over themselves? And anyway, it's, it's, it's ominous in a lot of horrible ways. Um, and the other story from that collection that I really love is called Free Jim's Mine, which is uh, historical. Yeah, it's historical. It's about a runaway slave and her Native American husband, and she's pregnant, and she runs away to her uncle, Jim, who owns a gold mine and is a free black man living in Florida. And um, she runs to him for help. And he hides the couple in deep, deep, deep in his mine overnight until he can get them out of the state and try to get them moving up north. 
And so they're stuck with no light deep, in, deep, deep, deep underground. She's heavily pregnant. The mine has been partially flooded because of the weather. And so there's just water everywhere. And then a monster comes out of the deep for them. And I'm not going to tell you what happens, but it's really, really creepy. And both of those stories, I think, would make great read-alouds because you, I found myself when I was reading those particular ones, um, like, hunching over tighter and tighter and tighter as the story kept going. And then when it was finally over, I was like, oh, God, like, I finally took a breath, you know, that sort of a thing. And I love seeing other people do that. So I think those would be really great. And do, she's a great author. I have a series on my horror blog where I do backlist authors not to miss. And she's one of those authors, it's come, speaking from a library perspective, you have her books in the library and um, because they always get well-reviewed. And it's really fantastic stories in general. In my book that we talked about at the beginning, I also have a couple of her books. And they're always like that, exactly what Amanda said. Uh, super creepy. Um, so I have a collection, again, like you said, anything from that collection. Well, I have an editor that I think she edits a ton of horror stuff. In fact, is the undisputed king and queen anything. She's just the <laughs> horror editor. And if you ask, you know, 100 horror authors, 99 are going to say they want to be in an Ellen Datlow collection. Um, she edits just about everything, not just the best of horror that comes out every year, which is a must look at if you want to see the full range. I mean, everyone who writes horror submits for her every time she has a call for submissions. And she does an amazing job getting the full range of authors who write horror from every sex, race, everywhere. And she is able to find the best, too. So any of those. But really, uh, one of her newer collections that I think would make a great read aloud, any story from it, is called The Doll Collection. It came out this year. Um as she says in the notes, you know, dolls are one of the most universally creepy things. Maybe next to clowns, the next one. It's so and, true. <laughs> oh, and she plays off of it just so perfectly, finding stories from across time. I mean, she has older stories. She has stories by award-winning writers and, and horror authors you never heard of. Some are very short and some are longer, so you'd have to look at the collection. But, oh, just to read out loud about a creepy doll, if you're going to do this, I said you said you're doing this in your library, I'm assuming you're going to have some kind of decoration in the room, having been in libraries for 15 years myself and doing these programs. Um, have some creepy dolls around the room and read a story from this book. Uh, they are fantastic. But really, any collection that she has edited, the good news is you're doing this in the library, you have all of her collections, at least a couple, because they always win awards. They're always well-reviewed. And just open one up and, and check it for length. And they range because it's different authors. But I can tell you that they're never a bad story. She's excellent at picking stories. Okay, my next one is the, the Defy the Dark anthology, which is a collection of young adult uh, short stories that are all creepier, horror, scary in some way. Um, there are two stories from that collection that I think would do really well for read-alouds. And the first one is uh, by Melinda Lowe. It's called Ghost Town. Uh, it's about a teenager. I mean, they're all about teenagers. I don't know why. As a culture, we love to hear and watch movies and read books about horrible things happening to teenagers. So there you go. Um, but it's about a teenager who is uh, new to this town. She's trying to make friends, but it's not going very well. Um, she's gay, so that's a, an issue for a lot of the people in this town that she lives in. Uh, but then one of the more popular girls in her class invites her to go check out a haunted house. Um, and the story is that, the story that she tells the new girl is that um, in, in history, hundreds of years ago, uh, uh, two women were murdered in that house because they were gay and they were caught. And their ghosts haunt the, uh, you know, the house or whatever. And the popular girl and her friends play, try to play a prank on the new girl in that context. And it doesn't exactly work out. And partially because 
maybe her story that she just made up to scare this girl is true. And maybe the ghosts that do or don't exist in this house are on the new girl's side, maybe? You don't know. It's creepy. Lots of questions. Uh, and the other story that I think would work for a read aloud is called The Dark Side of the Moon. It's by Dia Reeves. And similar to the Tanana Reeves do, where it's just accepted that there are ghosts, in this story, it's about a small town where it's just accepted that there are demons and ghosts and um, kind of like Buffy in the Hellmouth. Like, you, it's just known that, like, weird stuff happens in this town. It's fine and everyone is used to it. Um, and one of the um, citizens of the town, she's a young girl, she's going, she's on her way off to college, she gets a new boyfriend who's from out of town, and he comes into town to ride what's called the night bus, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like, it's like a haunted conveyance that once people get on, they never come off, but he wants to ride it successfully to impress her and show her that he's got metal, um, and so he gets on and has this horrifying ride, and I'm not going to tell you if, success, if he succeeds or not, but... Um, it's worth reading, especially out loud. That would be super creepy. And the characters are really great. So if you can do voices, I am pro that. <laughs> voices are always a good choice. Yes. Um, so I'm going to do for my last short story. I've actually, it's, I'm sort of cheating here because I've heard the, oh, somebody read this story out loud. So I know that it works really well, but it's from a collection that came out last year. That's called The New Black. It was edited by Richard Thomas. Um, he is a Chicago based editor. And I happened to go to this great horror bookstore in Chicago called Bucket of Blood. So shout out to them to hear him do a reading. Um, let me just talk about this collection a little bit. First of all, it's 20 neo-noir stories. Um, and that's the best authors that are currently writing in sort of this dark subgenre that mixes horror, crime, fantasy, science fiction, and magical realism, and just the grotesque with a literary bent. Um, so some of the authors in this collection that you might have heard of are Benjamin Percy, who's a best-selling author, Roxane Gay, who you wouldn't think of as necessarily writing horror stories, but she has a great story in this collection, Joe Mino, who's, I don't know how many people know him outside of Chicago, but he's a really big Chicago author also, and one of my favorites, Craig Davidson, who's an award-winning Canadian author, uh, who also writes... Uh, as Nick Cutter as a horror author, and um, he has great stories that way. But the story I want to talk about is by a great new voice in sort of these this dark fans, uh, dark horror science fiction fantasy. And this is a fairly traditional horror story um, by Stephen Graham Jones, and he has some collections. And it's very short. It's the first story in the collection, and it's called Father, Son, Holy Rabbit. It's narrated by a young boy. The story begins, and a boy and his father are somewhere stranded in the snow. Um, but you know that the boy survives because it says at the very beginning, years later, it would come to the boy again in a rush up to him in a job interview, and he's remembering it. Extremely tense. I think it's only, I actually have the book right here in front of me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's 10 pages, and it's a boy and his father stuck in the snow. And this rabbit, it plays a um, very unique part in the tale. Um, there's no monster attacking them here. This is the boy and his father against the elements trying to survive. We don't know why they're stranded, um, but they're stranded in this bleak landscape. And um, it is just heart-wrenching. There are parts that are absolutely disgusting to be described, but not in a um, monster-killing-someone sort of way. It's also just heart-wrenching. And and like I said, the editor, Richard Thomas, read this out loud, and the tension in the room, it was a very cold setting. This was a super hot day in Chicago, no air conditioning. It was a couple years ago. We were all sweating, yet shivering. So I know this story works out loud. So, And definitely the entire collection is what I said. It was 20 stories. It's paperback, and the whole thing's only um, le less than 350 pages. So all the stories 
are short enough to be read aloud. But that one in particular um, just got a room. And we were all horror writers and people in the horror industry, and we were shivering in a hot day. So that's definitely a good one. All right. Question three. Uh, let's see. Dear Amanda, I was hoping you could recommend some well-written horror fiction. I'm a huge fan of horror movies, and I read quite a bit, but I usually stick to literary fiction and nonfiction. The only horror novels that I can recall reading are Frankenstein and the Goosebumps series I read as a preteen. Love Goosebumps. I love Poe, but never got into King. I can appreciate the cheesiness of a low-budget horror film, but I am less amused by bad books. And that is from Corinna. Okay, so my first recommendation for you, uh, I went with, like, straight-up lit-fic horror genre mashups for this one because I think that sounds like what she's asking for. So my first one is Zone 1 by Colson Whitehead, which was actually the first book that I had ever read that I had ever heard described as uh, like literary horror. I had never heard that mashup before and it's a weird kind of genre, but I don't want to get into it. Anyway, I'll start ranting about literary is not real, but this is a good book. Okay, it's a good book. So it's post-apocalyptic zombie horror. And post-apocalyptic in that the pandemic that has created, that has like turned everyone in, into zombies has already passed and Americans are now busy rebuilding civilization. Um, the provisional government of America is now based in Buffalo and their top priority is resettling Manhattan, which is uh, called, they're calling Zone 1, this area south of Canal Street. So the armed forces have set up this um, barracks in the south of Canal Street. They've successfully reclaimed the island from zombies, basically, and are now sending a, a force of civilian volunteers out into the city, building by building, to clear out um, what are called malfunctioning zombies, so that the, the virus either makes you a zombie and you, you know, go off and be a zombie, or it turns you into, like, a straggler, which is this weird catatonic thing where people just stand still for, and can stay that way for years. And since the pandemic broke out, they're are people who have been stuck in the same position, catatonic for forever. And so the civilian volunteers are going through to clear out any zombies that are still trapped in buildings and also to get rid of these um, catatonic people who are stuck and not moving and have been that way for forever. And the book follows Mark Spitz, who's one of, who is a member of the civilian army uh, working in lower Manhattan there. And the book alternates between flashbacks of how he survived the outbreak and got to where he is um, to what happens over three days in the novel as... Um, the rebuilding process starts to deteriorate and things start to go really horribly wrong. So uh, it's got that kind of... Colson Whitehead, everything Colson Whitehead writes has this really... Um, what's the word? That's cynical. Kind of jaded and just ugh kind of <laughs> tone to it. Like he's just bored and cynical. And that this book has that voice. So Mark Spitz is bored He's cynical. He's just bleh about the whole situation, despite the fact that it's horrifying and he's been on the run for his life for years. And it's a weird juxtaposition that works really well in the book, I thought. So I really like that one. And that has one of the best endings. Yes. Of, read, okay, I read a lot of zombie books. <laughs> that has a fantastic ending. So I'm going to talk about a zombie book, too, that's sort of a literary zombie book. Um, it's called The Reapers of the Angels by Alden Bell. This is a great YA adult crossover. Um, so we also have a zombie apocalypse going here. But first of all, unlike Zone 1, we have no explanation as to how and why it happened. Because our narrator is a 15-year-old girl named Temple, and she's illiterate. And she's never known a world without zombies. She had to grow up like this, and she's been on her own for most of her life. So for her, it makes sense that we don't need to have an explanation. Um, and, you know, she would not know that zombies 
came to be part of reality. They're just part of it. The story opens and she's on an island where she's been safe because the zombies couldn't get there. But for reasons, she needs to get off of it. Um, And we have no organization. There's no army helping out. What we have is she meets people along the way who have all learned to deal with the zombies in different ways. And these citizens are all in a daily struggle to survive. So as a result, the description of the landscape, the people, the small sediments, the desert towns are just more haunting. This is really like a Southern Gothic meets meets psychological suspense story more than horror. Um, But there is one plot thing that keeps the story moving. So it's not just all about the atmosphere. Um, We know Temple's tough. She actually kills a man who's trying to rape her. But then she's stalked by that man's brother. And we see all this happen, who now wants to kill her. But they engage in this strange, frightening, and at times oddly heartwarming game of cat and mouse. I mean, remember, there's very few living people here. So that's really creepy, too, the way that um, Belle plays with that story. She also acquires a mute giant named Maury as a traveling companion. And so she's trying to return him to Texas, which gives the story um, some, some direction. So it's like, again, not just about her wandering. And um, the man who's trying to kill her is also pursuing her. And along the way, they meet an odd assortment of people. And um, when they all get to Texas, the story is done, the story of our book. But I want you to read it to see how it all ends. Um, I really like how this novel creeped me out. I read a lot of zombie books. And the zombies were pushed to the periphery. They weren't in your face like some other books. Um, But more than that, that bleak landscape, that tough child on her own, and that evil um, guy who's trailing her. It was just satisfyingly creepy. I was nervous, unsettled, uncomfortable throughout the entire book. And that's what this um, person writing in wanted. And the writing is fantastic. All right. My next one is The Night Strangers. It's by Chris Bajalian. And um, I just actually just read this this month. And it was so... It's a Victorian haunted house sort of thing. Kind of. So it follows Chip and Emily Linton, uh, a married couple, and their twin daughters who were 10 years old. Chip is an airline pilot who had to ditch his regional, a regional jet he was flying in a lake after um, his plane ran into a bunch of birds and both of his engines failed. So the book opens with you in the plane with him trying to land it successfully, and it's in the second person, so you are Chip. You were, like, in his seat trying to land this plane and save all these people. Um, and so he's, he's landing the plane on a lake, and then something goes wrong, and um, 39 of the passengers die. And Chip survives, and leaves his town uh, with his wife and his family to kind of flee uh, all of his I got PTSD, basically, and um, everyone he knows and to just get away and try and rebuild his life somewhere else. So they move into this rambling Victorian house in northern New Hampshire in the middle of nowhere in this really, really tiny town to start over. Um, and then they realize, Chip realizes one day when he's down in the basement that there's a, a kind of weird door off in the corner uh, hidden by a pile of coal. He moves the coal and the door is held in place by 39 um, bolts, carriage bolts, um, that he can't get out. And so he realizes that there are 39 bolts, one bolt for every person he lost on that plane. And uh, meanwhile, his wife is settling in and befriending all of the kind of weird eccentric people who live in New- northern New Hampshire. And they call themselves the herbalists of the, the village. And they all have greenhouses and they all grow kind of weird stuff. Um, and so you don't really know what's going on there, but they're a little bit ominous and creepy and strange. Um, and then you find out that the people who they bought the house from also had twins and that one of the twins died. And so it's a, this combination of like, what's going on with this, these herbalists? What happened to the twin who used to live in that house? Is something similar going to happen to the twins who live there now? And what's behind that door? So there are 
are threads on threads on threads in this book. Um, and it's the thing that I liked about it is that it's, um, it does have like a weird supernatural thing going on, but it's really people like the people in this book are the most frightening and they're not, they're not mean. They're not gross. They're not, um, crass or gory. They're just hor. There's horrible people, a lot of them. And, um, sometimes that's the most frightening thing. So yeah, I say I read, I read a lot of horror and often it's the people who are the worst. Yes. Um, I have a sort of haunted house story too that involves a door. So <laughs> it's actually a brand new book and it's by a, uh, an author you may not expect to be writing horror. It's called Slade House and it's by David Mitchell. Um, so this look, I know David Mitchell writes these huge award-winning novels. This one is slim and it's very compelling. Um, in fact, I think it's his most accessible book yet. It's a haunted house story in the vein of classes like Turn of the Screw and The Haunting of Hill house. I really feel like it's going to be read as a Halloween staple for years to come. But here's the setup. It's written as five distinct chapters. Each is set on the last Saturday in October, spaced nine years apart. So we go back um, into like the 1970s to start it. And it goes all the way actually into the future and think nine years into the future from now. Um, but the novel is always following the nefarious exploits of the Grayer twins who inhabit the eponymous home, Slade House, um, in the story. And what they do is this story is hidden in a narrow alley behind a pub. The door to get to it only appears every nine years on that last Saturday in October. So each chapter is told through the point of view of that poor soul who has been unknowingly summoned to the home as a sacrifice to the twins. The twins basically need a soul. They need to eat that person's soul so they can keep living forever. And throughout the course, you learn a little bit more about their story. But what I love is, and you're going to appreciate is how over that 36 year span, characters and story threads overlap to craft a unified psychological tale it's just like more ambitious works by Mitchell because the reader gets the same genre blending, intricate plotting, and thought-provoking storylines, but with that narrow focus, it's intensely unsettling. And as we go through time, you know, when we start at the beginning, people disappearing, nobody seems to really, uh, they just say, oh, they're gone, we won't find them. And they make up stories, like the woman ran away to Canada and took her son. But as we get closer to the present, there are people, there are conspiracy theorists who are looking into it. And there is this underground plot to sort of undo the twins. Um, and we have some ghost hunters from a college coming toward the end. It's just, it's it's great haunted house story. And you just want to scream at your book, like, don't go in the house. Mm. But um, it works really well. And it's very slim. You can, I think I read it at the pool this summer, an advanced copy. Um, you can read it super fast because of that episodic writing. All right, my last one I'm going to talk about really quick for time's sake. It's called The Devil in Silver by Victor Laval. And it's about this a big working class guy named Pepper who's arrested one night because uh, he gets in a bar brawl. And he's taken to a mental institution in Queens, New York, because the cops who arrest him don't, it's the end of their shift and they don't want to deal with paperwork of having to process him. So they take him to this mental institution and drop him so that they can draw, just uh, drop him and leave. So he doesn't have any mental illnesses, but that doesn't really matter. You know, when you've been arrested, it doesn't matter what you say, you're, you're not in power anymore. So he's accused of this crime that he can't really remember committing. When he's in his room on the first night, he has to stay for three days. He's under, um, I don't remember what the name of the order is, but he's under observation for three days. He's visited by this terrifying creature. It has a, the body of a man and the head of a cow who nearly kills him. And then is kind of, it's taken away by the hospital staff. So then he wakes up and realizes that it's not, he's not hallucinating. The other patients confirm that there is a monster that kind of haunts um, this mental institution and lives on the floor above them. And so this very odd group of patients come together. There's an immigrant, 
from Africa. There's um, an octogenarian woman who's hilarious named Dory, who I really love, a teenage girl, uh, and this big working class dude named Pepper get together to defeat this devil that haunts um, the mental institution. But, but, you know, is it immortal? Can they even kill it at all? Who knows? And of course, they spend 90% of their day drugged because they're in a mental institution. And so that impairs their ability to to plan and function and and take any sort of action. And the scariest part about this book for me was how powerless everyone in, in the book is. Like you don't you don't know if the monster is real or if they're hallucin or if they are hallucinating, but if they're not and the monster is real, there's 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 nothing they can do. Like no one's gonna listen to them because of where they are. No one's going to understand or try to help them. Um, they're 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 given um, sedatives half the time so they can't even act on their own agency. So it's very unsettling to watch all of this stuff unfold and know that these characters can't do anything about it because they have no power and uh yeah it just it bothered me on a lot of levels so that's the last one okay moving on question four um hello amanda every october i like to read horror novels for the entire month in celebration of halloween thanks to book riot i've been making an effort to diversify my reading and i've noticed that the vast majority of horror novels in my tbr were written by right excuse me were written by white men can you please recommend horror novels written by women and people of color? So we're not going, this is from Sarah. We're not going to do specific recommendations for this request because there are women and people, call it, people of color in the answers to all of the questions on the show. Um, in, on this episode and in every, every episode, we are making an effort to make that happen. So I'm not, I don't want to, not ghettoize, but I don't want to separate out excellent books written by women or people of color into their own question. It's a great question and I totally understand why you're asking it. And I had to do research of that specific kind for this episode and every other episode too. So, so I totally get it. Um, but you can just go back and look at all the answers to all the other questions and each set will have women and people of color in it. So I did want to give you another resource to check out. There's a, a post on the blog Write World and I will leave a link in the show notes. That's just a great big list of female horror writers and horror writers of color for you to check out. And a lot of the ones that we've named on the show uh, so far are on that list and you can use that as a jumping off point to find other people. And then Becky does have a couple other uh, resources for you as well. So I'll let her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to mention real fast. Yeah, uh, there's the Women in Horror Month is every February. And um, Amanda will include a link to that. Mm -hmm. A lot of us bloggers who are women in horror do a lot about that. Um, and I do want to mention one of the authors on that list is J.F. Gonzalez. And he is uh, he recently passed away. And he's an excellent Hispanic horror writer. And if you want to learn more about him, Another, a female horror writer named Leslie Connor, who's also an editor for Apex Magazine, wrote a fantastic debut novel called The Weight of Chains, which I wrote about on my blog and in Library Journal. You should check that out. But she did a tribute to J.F. Gonzalez on my blog, Ari for All Horror, this month. And it started a lot of talk around uh, on Twitter. And it was a lot of people just were very moved by it. He's a great author that uh, was starting to get forgotten because he got ill and uh, authors like Brian Keene, who I'll talk about later, have been bringing him back and letting people, um, you know, they're going to re-release some of his work. And she wrote a great appreciation of him. So check that out, too. All right. And we'll have links to all of those resources in the show notes. All right. So question five. Uh, let's see. I love the fall season, and I'm always looking to fill the months, especially October, with horror and suspense books. I enjoy reading paranormal, supernatural books, but it's difficult to find something that will give me chills. And that is from Celia. Okay, um, my first recommendation for this is actually a graphic novel. It's called Witches by Scott Snyder, um, which is volume one. It's an ongoing comic, so it is still coming out issue by issue, but the first trade, which is a collection of the first five or six, I don't remember which, um, issues of the comic book did just come out. So um, it's how to describe. It's witches, but not 
as you're thinking, not like hocus pocus. These are horrifying monsters that come out of the earth to destroy you. And it follows a family who is fleeing a traumatic event from their past, as so many of the families are that we've talked about so far. And so they move into a big rambling house in the middle of nowhere, also a theme, uh, to escape their past. But uh, what caused their trauma or what um, contributed to their trauma has followed them. And it has something to do with the witches that live in the woods and that um, you can, that, that mark people. And the, the comic opens hundreds of years ago with a little boy whose mother has been marked to be fed or sacrificed to the witches to satisfy them by the townspeople. And her son helps the witches take her away. And it's just this like horrifying image of this child. I don't remember what he says, but it's something like, marked is marked as they're dragging her off into the into the woods and the the art in this book is so creepy the, the witches are so horrifying they're they're not they're humanoid you know as opposed to just being humans with superpowers um and it's also a book about parenting so the the book follows the the mother and father who are trying to help their teenage daughter deal with the trauma of her past and deal with her anxiety issues and all of that and it's it's really more about what you are willing to do what you're willing to sacrifice as a parent to keep your children safe. Um, so there's a lot going on. I don't know if you like comic books at all, uh, Celia, but if you don't, this is a great one to start with if you like horror. And Scott Snyder's fantastic. His, you know, American Vampire series is also more than just about vampires. It's about American history, too. He does a great job with that. I'm going to go with a different format, too, um, because some of what this um, this reader wants is that sort of creepy, chill feeling. And I have one of the best horror books on audio that I have ever experienced. It's called Ghost Radio. It's by the uh, author Leopold Gout, who has also written a few things with James Patterson, but he is a Mexican-based author, and this story is set um, on a radio show that sort of is in Houston but goes over the border to both. Um, it's an occult call-in radio show. That's why it works so great on in audio, because it's all about a radio show. So, And there's also pictures, though, if you read the actual book, because he is uh, an artist, too, the author. So the plot is a young man named Yo Queen, and he is a teenager. When he's a teenager, on his trip home to Mexico to see his grandma in Houston, Texas, his parents and himself are in a car accident. In another car, Gabriel and his parents are also involved in the accident, and only the two boys survive. And this event unites them in a lifelong friendship. Um, and both boys like the Dead Kennedy song, Kill the Poor, which later becomes important. And the story alternates between past and present. So grown-up Joaquin hosts a popular Mexican call-in radio show called Ghost Radio, where callers call and talk about their occult experiences, and um, then, it, which is creepy enough, especially <laughs> when you're listening. And then in the past story, we, we see um, Joaquin's and Gabriel's life from the accident to the present, and it's explained. Um, in the present, however, we know Gabriel's dead, and Joaquin hosts the radio show with his girlfriend, Alejandra. So the novel alternates between the three characters' points of view, focuses clearly on Joaquin, and his, and he moves the show to America, and his reality when he moves it to America begins to unravel, and he goes on a quest to discover the truth, and along the way he meets up with this Mexican priest, and he finds archives of his own radio show from 20 years before he began working on it. So there's this sinister unnamed force which is stalking him and speaking directly to the reader throughout the novel. It works great. It's creepy. It's supernatural. And this force is using ghost radio to move back and forth um, between the world of the living and the world of the dead. It's very cool. 
Okay, so my other my next recommendation for this one is called The Night Wanderer. It's by Drew Hayden Taylor. This is actually a YA novel about a vampire. Uh, Drew Hayden Taylor is a Canadian um, First Nations author, and this book takes place on Otter Lake Reservation in Canada. It follows a 16-year-old girl named Tiffany, uh, whose mother has recently abandoned her family to go run off with a white man. So she's living with her grandfather and her, I mean, not her grandfather, her father and her grandmother. And her dad, for money, decides to rent out her room um, and of course that upsets her because teenage girls don't like their spaces being invaded. But the guest who comes is nice. He's polite. Uh, he doesn't ask for anything. He just asks for his privacy, but he's also a little weird. He only ever comes out, uh, at night. He won't eat with the family at all. He seems to, the dogs are all scared of him for some reason. So you get where this is going. Uh, he's a very old vampire who has returned to his home. He, is very old and lived in the area before white people came. Um, so he's returned to decide if he wants to continue living, basically. And so it's this weird intersection of this old, wise, horrible monster and this 16-year-old girl who's kind of a brat because, you know, <laughs> she's 16 or whatever. Um, she's got a lot of problems. She's got boyfriend issues. She's got stuff going on with her mom. She doesn't get along with her dad. She's not doing very well in school. She doesn't like living on the reservation and doesn't, have any real like appreciation or desire to learn anything more about her culture. And then here comes this old, um, wizened vampire to invade her life and things. I know I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to go into their interactions or whatever, but, um, things change for both of them when their paths cross and it's creepy and it's kind of Gothic coming of age, annoying, but lovable YA protagonist. So it's got a lot going for it that I really liked. And my last book I'm just going to talk about real quickly, and it's the book that I sort of teased out at the beginning. This is this year's Bird Box. It's called A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. He is also in that collection, The New Black, that I mentioned before. This is the hot horror book of this year. I don't want to give away too much of it, but every horror author loves this book. Paul Tremblay is also one of the judges for the Shirley Jackson Award, which is my absolute favorite award in sort of creepy books. And it's for books that are most like Shirley Jackson. Um, and you can take a look at that online to see the other winners. But he's one of the judges. This book plays off of, again, it has some teen protagonists. It is a family that was torn apart many years ago by a possible um, uh, possession of one of the children in the family. And then there's a reality show theme where they're going back to, to figure out what actually happened. Um, what I love about this book is you don't know what really happens ever. It's up to you to decide. And I've heard horror authors discussing this book um, in some book discussions on some online podcasts, and they read it more than once and they change their mind what it's about. It plays with things that you think are safe. Besides the whole idea of children in the home, there's a great use of those of the Richard Scary books that we all really love that is totally creepy. And you are guessing till the very end and even after the end. Was it a uh, possession? Who was actually the one possessed? What is going on in this family? Or is it all inside someone's head? Just if you loved Bird Box, this is the book you need to read. It is creepy without being in your face. Okay, I'm going to do our second sponsor, and then we will do our last question because we are running out of time. So our second sponsor is the movie adaptation Room from Emma Donahue, which is an adaptation of the book Room by Emma Donahue. So both highly suspenseful and deeply emotional, Room is a unique and touching exploration of the boundless love between a mother and her child. It follows five-year-old Jack and his mother as they escape from the enclosed surroundings that Jack has known his entire life um, because, as you know, if you have 
read the book, uh, Ma was abducted and put into this room where she's been stuck with her kid. Um, so as after they leave and they escape, the boy makes this thrilling discovery, which is the outside world. He experiences all the, he experiences all this joy and excitement and fear that comes along with getting out of room and going on this new adventure. And he holds tight to the one thing that matters most of all to him, and that is his mother. So the adaptation of Room was itself written by Emma Donahue, which is nice. It's great when an author can stay involved in a movie version of their work. So the book, I mean, the movie is already open. It opened on Friday the 16th uh, in New York and Los Angeles. It opens nationwide on Friday, November the 6th. So go check out Room uh, and read the book if you haven't already read it. Go see the movie. All right, our last question. Question six. I love the idea of an episode dedicated to Halloween and horror. I need a newbie recommendation because though I think it's a super fun theme, I've never actually read any horror novels because I'm too chicken. I really want to dip my toes in this bloody water. So where should I start? Horror essentials, as we call it. Thanks a million. All right, I'm gonna, I've got three and I'm gonna go through them super fast just all at once for time. So the first one is Let the Right One In by John Ajvide Lindquist. This is a modern vampire novel told uh, from the perspective of children, the, the vampire is a child, the main character is a child. Uh, well, I guess the vampire's not really a child, the vampire is 100 years old, but was turned as a child, so there that is. And it takes place in modern day in somewhere in Northern Europe where it's really cold, I don't remember. Anyway, it's super, super creepy, little gory, little violent, really great. The second one is The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. It's a short story um, retelling of the, oh gosh, what's his name? Bluebeard, the Bluebeard myth about the, the pirate who marries over and over again and murders his wives. But this is more modern, takes place in, not, not not like today, but maybe 50s, 60s sort of era about a young girl who marries a wealthy Frenchman and then discovers horrible secrets about him when she goes to his house. And the last one that I want to say is Ring by Koji Suzuku, Suzuki, excuse me, which is the book upon which the movie The Ring and the movie Ringu, which is the Japanese version, are based. And in uh, in the book version, a journalist discovers a connection between the death of his niece and the death of a strange teenager who he's never met and um, discovers a supernatural connection that has to do with a video that uh, when you watch it, you are doomed to die unless you do what the video tells you to do, but someone has erased the what are you supposed to do to stop from dying part. So he has to figure out this mystery, where the video came from, how to stop himself from dying, especially once his wife and baby watch the video and you don't know what's going to happen to them. So that is kind of a the Ring movie is kind of a classic of horror movies, and so you should really check out the book upon which it is based. So if you can give us your three, Becky, super fast, and then we will be I will. In fact, yeah. I was do it that way. I actually listed this as modern classics three ways, sort of Iron Chef style. Yes. So, um, because there's a difference between horror written before um, Stephen King's Carrie came out and after. So these are ones that are after. So Ramsey Campbell's my first author because he is really the Stephen King of England and um, of British horror writing. His classic book, his start with title, as we say in the library field, is now. Nazareth Hill, which is a classic ghost story featuring a young girl, Amy. So as a young child, she sees a ghost through the window of Nazareth, a rundown building. And eight years later, after Amy's father becomes the caretaker of the now renovated building, an older tenant dies. Before it's too late, Amy must convince everyone that his death is the work of a ghost out for revenge. And um, this is really a terrifying story, although it does have a child in peril theme, which some people don't like. 
And then the other book I want to talk about very quickly is Nosferatu, and that's spelled N-O-S-4-A-2. It's the license plate of one of the characters. It's by Joe Hill, who's Stephen King's son. He calls this his horror thesis. And in my book, I talk about Joe Hill, along with Jonathan Mawberry, as the new kings of 21st century horror. This is the current, this novel is the current gold standard for horror. It is a huge book. But let me just tell you very quickly, it follows two people, Charlie Manx, who's one of the most evil villains in the world. He is a kind of vampire in that he lives forever inside this car, a wraith that is, um, has that license plate, and he steals children to take them to Christmas land. It's so creepy. (laughs) God, he makes Christmas the scariest thing ever. And if you really like the wraith and Charlie Manx, there's an entire graphic novel series just about him, or one book right now. But Vic, Victoria, is our heroine. There's also an awesome librarian sort of semi-heroine. She's more of a martyr for the cause. The whole book is around this idea of the inscape, this places where some people can get to that lives in the imagination. And Vic has to fight one for her own sanity to prove that she's not making this stuff up. But literally, she is kick butt. She Hmm. just, you know, tries to save the day and defeat Charlie Manx. And I have to tell you about this book. Please do read every single page of text. I mean, go through the acknowledgments, the notes on the text. It is one of the most unsettling experiences I've ever seen. And if you have read um, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman, which came out right after uh, Nosferatu, Neil Gaiman sort of makes a wink, wink, nod, nod to Joe Hill and the thank yous because of what Joe Hill did with that story of taking the story into the, every page of text in the book. So read that. It's worth the 800 pages. Now, If you want to be a little bit braver, Roberta, I know you say you're chicken, but if you want to see where the current zombie craze started, you know, there's an argument that it starts with a couple things, but one of the three things is The Rising by Brian Keane. He really is the, uh, Keane, sorry, by Brian Keane. He's the king of pulp horror. This is the zombie novel along with the Walking Dead graphic novel and the movie 28 Days Later started the current zombie craze. Um, this is a great book and, um, you will be surprised that you haven't read it because a lot of the stuff you see today happening came from this book. Um, I also, it was a great chance for me to talk about Brian King very keen, very quickly. He always goes out of his ways to support women and people of color and horror. I mentioned him with JF Gonzalez. Um, he's one of the ones that told me about Leslie Connor. I mentioned before who wrote the post in appreciation, but right now, and it's on my blog and I provided a link to it. He is offering a deal to booksellers and librarians. He has a brand new hardcover book coming out in the summer. Uh, I think it's with Macmillan. And he is offering independent bookstores and librarians the chance to appear free this summer. All you have to do is buy some books. And he'll come out and say thank you for supporting horror. And um, it's going to be great. So you should definitely check out anything by him. But The Rising, if you can only pick one. All right. Thank you guys so much. That is our show. So you can find us online. I'm on Twitter at I'm Amanda Nelson. Becky's on Twitter at RA for all. And I will leave all of the links to those things in all of our show notes. Please go rate us on iTunes. Leave a review if you like the show or if you don't like the show, I guess you could do that. Whatever. Fine. It's fine. I'll forgive you. And don't forget, you can come to Book Riot Live, get $20 off of your uh, registration with the code GETBOOKED, one word. And thank you to our sponsors, We'll Never Be Apart by Amico Jean and Room the Adaptation. And I will talk to y'all later. Bye.